0: Greg Wah and Dan Beeston are
1: smart enough to know better. Hey, and welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better, episode 28, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance.
2: I don't know why you're acting so uninterested, Dan. We've got an awesome interview in this one with an awesome person, Emily Lactawalla, who is a planetary blogger, or planetary is a writer, I should say, for the Planetary Society. That's very exciting. That's the lady you heard at the start of the podcast today. That's awesome. Talking about... Space. Oh, you're such a curmudgeon. <sighs> curmudgeon. In episode 27, we had a strange man speaking in a strange tongue to introduce the podcast.
1: Yep. Who but was we that did, man? We didn't mention it at no. the time because I sort of did after the fact and uh, just, you know, dropped the ball and squeezed it in there and went, <laughs> no one's going to know what that is. That's right. Well, so, we're. it's been two weeks of freaking out on your behalf. That's right. Ladies well, and gentlemen. People need to know what was that? What was that person? Who was that person? And what were they saying? That and- was just Lampy, and he could speak Mongolian fluently. Goodness me! Well, I'm not sure whether it's fluent or not. It <laughs> could be really, you know, ham fisted or ham tongued. Was he? Was he actually saying Gregoire and Dan Beeson were smart enough to know better? No. Ooh. No, he was saying a very specific phrase. Which is? I have no idea.
2: <laughs> you the... kind of jumped this on me, and I meant Once to write a... it down. And <laughs> Once again, we're at the mercy of our listeners who send in different numbers. But, number 28. It's just, this is episode 28. And the only interesting thing I could find about 28, which fits in with the interview today, kind of, is that the number 28 is the number of days the surface of the sun goes in rotation. Hang on, let me check that. The sur- oh, okay. That's right. The, does the core spin that fast? No, it doesn't. The core spins at 33 days per revolution. So Slower. The sun, long, yes. So the surface of the sun goes around in 28 days, and the core goes around in 33 days. And that's what kind of causes a lot of magnetic, interesting sort of nulls and whirls and interesting things like that. Ooh. It's all it's all plasma, of course, so it yeah. doesn't need to lock in position like no. the planet Earth does. Though our core probably rotates slightly differently. As well, because it's a liquid core. 28 is the number of days it takes the surface of the sun it's to... liquid? Well, it's... It's, it's, it's a big iron ball, it's, isn't it? It's very, very hot. It's pretty much a liquid, yes. Okay, so it's, it's that hot. Yeah, well, It's yeah. liquid it's, iron. It's about 6,000 degrees at the surface at the yeah. of the planet. It can very easily melt melt iron, yes. That's hotter than the surface of the sun. It's about the same. So six to 10,000, uh, 10,000 for the sun, roughly. It's about the temperature of the surface of the sun. And we're not talking about that you can get to millions of degrees in some parts of the sun, up in the corona and around there. I'm talking about the surface of the sun itself. It's one of those weird things. There are parts outside the surface of the sun which are hotter than the surface of the sun itself, which is a bit weird. Anyway, this can all be explained, but not right now. Because there is actually a pretty sad thing to mention, which I'm sure you've heard, but that's the passing of Neil Armstrong.
1: I, 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 had, I, was, being, I was being
2: quiet. Like, oh. re- re- Reverend? Reverend. That's reverend. Great. I was Reverend. Yeah, it was. It, it, well, Neil Armstrong, everyone knows Neil Armstrong. Most people know who he was. Uh, I, he I, was I, the first chap to uh, stand on the moon. That's right. And you ask most children hey, hey? that. I, uh, I run a uh, uh, science <laughs> podcast. <laughs> if you ask most children that question, like six-year-olds, they can, they can normally name Neil Armstrong, who the first, first human still? on the moon. Still? Yes, yes. It amazes me. But many children can still name Neil Armstrong. If you say, who's Neil Armstrong? They'll say, he's the first man on the moon. It's pretty impressive. So that's a massive legacy. And no longer than human memory, even the human species gets wiped out tomorrow in some terrible catastrophe, which hope it doesn't happen. Neil Armstrong's footprint, that first famous footprint on the moon, will last at least a million years on the moon because there's no air. Not. And there's no there's no nothing up there. So can't gasp on it, the moon. Can't gasp on the moon. And the, all that's going to move it is a moonquakes if the moon's a little bit active or if an asteroid sort of peppers it with something. That's it. So or last, if it
1: smacks it head on, I mean, then it's gone. Well,
2: yeah, that's true too. But about a million years. So that is one human being who left a legacy that will probably outlast... Well well I don't think about last human civilization I, I'm quite optimistic about human civilization.
1: Well we got we got that probe going out too. that'll yeah. last
2: a while. That's right lots of pro- that's, that's got, got a that's got, got a shelf life of like a billion years that, well, that gold record. That's that's right but um, that's well yeah at least hundreds of millions of years yeah exactly right. But but one humans just one humans footprint is pretty impressive. There you go. Neil Armstrong passed away since the last podcast which is very sad indeed. But Meh, oh like
1: I, I don't know. I mean uh, for people who knew him they don't get to hang around with them anymore, yeah. so that's a bit sad. But death's pretty normal. Like, that's that's right. how everything works. Everything dies, yes, and that's what makes things as special. Doctor,
2: as Doctor Who said, everything has its time, and I follow a lot of Doctor Who, so that's good.
1: Uh, except for Doctor
2: Who, which seems to go on forever. <laughs> so speaking of going on forever, human exploration. That was my attempt at a segue, by the way. That was quite good.
1: Yeah, it, uh, Once again, it yes. would have worked if you hadn't drawn attention to it, it. and stopped everything.
2: <laughs> So, we are now going to go into our interview talking about the forever of space with Emily Lactawalla. <laughs> we are very excited today to be talking to Emily Lactawalla, all the way from California and the Planetary Society. Hello, Emily.
0: Hello, it's nice to talk to you.
2: And today we're going to be discussing all things space. Oh, I'm obsessed with Not space. Really. Oh. Not really. I mean, space is, space is all the stuff that, I mean, The planets
1: are in space, but so is Earth. (laughs) So we're we're not actually talking about space at all. We're
2: talking about (sighs) when you get out of space. Isn't that right? Good point. Okay, we're going to be talking today to Emily about, well, the the Mars Curiosity rover and other things Mars-based and anything else that might pop to mind. So for our listeners, Emily, who might not have heard of you, and I can't believe that's true, but for those who haven't heard of you, who are you and, and why are we talking to you?
0: Who am I and why am I here? Well, I work at the Planetary Society, which is an international non-governmental organization that advocates space research and exploration. Which means that I get to spend my days reading about what's going on in the solar system with robots exploring other planets, and I get to write about it, which is actually a, a pretty awesome job, I have to say. They don't they don't pay me very well, but um, I enjoy what I do, so you know I'm I'm very happy to be doing it.
2: I am so jealous. I just have to say. I know you probably heard this a million times from a million geeks, but I am very. Jealous right now.
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm certainly very pleased to be doing it. I get to write a lot of, about a lot of very exciting missions, and certainly Curiosity has to be one of the most exciting things going right now. Frankly, I didn't actually think that it was going to work.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know, know a lot of people who had the <laughs> same uh, well, was that attitude. That, that, Anyone who's ever played Mousetrap in their life <laughs> looked at the uh, the plan and went, Oh I reckon that that I reckon the diving man's going to asphyxiate before the uh, before they manage to land that on the surface." <laughs>
0: Well, and, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because you look at the animation and you think, well, that's crazy. Surely it's not going to work. And then, I, you know, I kept on reflecting and thinking about how previous missions had landed. And when you think about it, imagine taking the most sophisticated computer you have ever built and putting it inside a balloon and bouncing it off the surface of another <laughs> rocky body numerous times before it opens up and lands. Would you, you would not do that to an electronic device. And, no. and yet did it and it worked. Well, um, I'd I so- like
2: to point out, I dropped my, my non-denominational smartphone on the ground and it has like a $5 protector and it smashed on the floor. That's like a very high, highly complicated bit of machinery. It fell three feet. Dead. So yes. I, don't, I don't want to drop the biggest or the most powerful computer I can build onto a planet's surface in a balloon. That's madness.
0: Right. So, so everybody who talked to me about how crazy this whole scheme seemed, I would point out that the previous scheme seemed even more crazy. And actually, <laughs> when I was talking to the engineers about this whole thing, the crazy thing, the, the thing that people got most freaked out about was the fact that the rover descended from a rocket-powered jetpack on um, people <laughs> and then <sighs> touched the ground. And the jetpack cut the – well, actually, the rover cut the cables, and the jetpack flew away and crashed. Mm. And this seems kind of nutty. But I was talking to an engineer about it, and they said, well, actually, it makes the job of figuring out what's going to happen a lot easier because you separate the moment of touchdown from the things that the jetpack has to think about to decide whether or not to turn off its rockets. Mm. Because otherwise, you know, you've got the rockets that – that they have to know when to shut down when you hit the ground, and that's actually the thing that killed Mars Polar Lander was that the rocket shut off too early, All and right. so the okay. the wheels no, do and the the rocket jetpack was able to say, okay, let's see, I think the weights off the cables, and we don't seem to be going down anymore, and we seem to be <laughs> kind of stable. Okay, I'll cut the cables and I'll fly away. I love the Which,
2: idea. I don't want to anthropomorphize too much for, uh, uh, the the, uh, the jetpack. I love the idea that it was sitting up there going, okay, the rover's landed. I'll fire. My jets and I'll fly to freedom oh wait help
0: me you
2: know, it's a there's a
0: moment they had that computer animation and, and like the jetpack cuts the cables and it flies away yes and I wanted to see that moment of like the wily coyote smash like up <laughs> of dust and they don't have that in the animation it always disappointed me so I was so happy when we got the photos in fact there's a, a brand new photo published today of the, the landing site from from high rise the camera and Mars reconnaissance orbiter and there's This really impressive crash where that descent stage landed. Where you see like the impact point, and there's this black splat. And if you look at it really closely, you see like all these other tiny little impact points where the thing must have just blown to smithereens and and burst into pieces. It didn't like blow up like a Hollywood explosion. There wasn't like you know oxidizer. But the tanks that had the fuel left in it were still under a lot of pressure. So those things burst like balloons when they landed, and it just sprayed ejecta everywhere. It was pretty cool.
2: How how are you gonna feel like we? go to Mars, uh, and they, well, we are on Mars, we move, and they sent a over to Mars to check out that crash site, and they discover the one bit of Martian life was crushed <laughs> underneath the, the jetpack. It's with these, these yeah. weird legs sticking out from underneath. It was, it's the last Martian gazelle! We crushed it! That would yeah. that, that would be bad.
0: <laughs> that would be bad. It's, it's
2: not very really like so. No, not very, that's true, that's true. So the Curiosity rover itself—why are we sending it? It's, and I, I mean, well, start off with it's big. I mean, it's, it's not like a little dinky robot, uh, uh, remote control car size thing. It's 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 quite a large vehicle, really.
0: Yeah, it's extremely large, and I am actually one of the few people who is not an engineer who has ever had the privilege of standing right up next to this machine oh, while it was under wow. construction. So, yeah, so there is this very brief opportunity given to the press, but they didn't know what was going to happen. So they only gave you warning of about a week, which meant that only like nine press from the Los Angeles area were able to take advantage of this and actually go. So you put on like they call it a bunny suit, <laughs> but it's a it's a disposable white sterile garment you put on little slippers over your shoes you put a head scarf thing on your head then you put the suit over it there's extra things in your shoes extra things in your head your cameras have to go through this special uv thing you go through an airlock that like blasts you with air to knock all the dust off you and and then you go in and you and you're standing right next to this thing and i gotta tell you it is enormous It is so big. So, like, I'm standing next to it, and I'm looking up at the eyes, and I try to take a photo of this thing, Mm. and I can't see the top of its back. Now, it was up on, like, blocks, basically, because it wasn't, like, completely constructed yet.
2: But it's... I I was worried that someone had stolen its wheels... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Well, the wheels had been put on, but it was still very much under assembly. But nice, the okay. the thing was huge, and and you know, as a person who has followed the Mars exploration Rover Spirit and, and Opportunity mm-hmm. so loyally for so many years, mm-hmm. frankly, I did not want to like Curiosity. Curiosity was <laughs> big. She looked kind of military and tank-like, mm-hmm. and and just not not as svelte and as uh, pretty, frankly, as, mm-hmm. as uh, Spirit and Opportunity. But as soon as I walked into that room and I and I looked this rover in the face. So I was like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be an awesome mission. And I'm falling in love with this rover. It's really cool. So I'm not being disloyal to Opportunity. She's still doing a fantastic job.
2: I,
1: I it
0: mean, with was around
2: pretty
1: quickly, too. It's like, oh, we've traveled 40 meters. I was
2: like, yeah. <laughs> they used to go, oh, we traveled 30 centimeters. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, and right. we found another rock. I felt, I must admit, I understand the feeling of, of disloyalty, because I've loved Spirit and Opportunity for quite a while as well, and followed their missions, and, and when Spirit died, I felt it, I felt it, <laughs> I, mean, I really felt its loss, and quite proud of the human race for what they did, and Opportunity's still up there doing its thing. And, uh, but I remember sitting, I was reading the day, well, basically the day that the Curiosity landed, I was all like, yes, Curiosity, amazing, and then the next day I was sort of reading all the information, your blog and other things as well, looking around for information, and then I went, oh, I'm not thinking about opportunity at all. And I suddenly felt I'd traded up my girlfriend, like I'd dumped my girlfriend, <laughs> and I'd got a new girlfriend who was, like, much, much bigger and nuclear-powered. And I just didn't know... You
0: know, know- what? <laughs> yes. we, we can love them both. Oh. And so, you know, I feel like I, I, I do need to That's stand up for open-minded. opportunity. Because it's I, I haven't got a chip. Chance- I'm sorry?
1: No, nothing, nothing. Dan's being rude. I was
2: thinking out loud. Ignore Dan for the moment. (laughs) All
0: right, well, well, anyway, I mean, I haven't been able to write about Opportunity lately because I've been quite busy, but Opportunity is actually doing something extremely exciting right now. So... Opportunity, you know, explored a couple craters here and there. She drove across trackless wastes of desert which you guys in Australia are quite familiar with <laughs> before coming up to this enormous crater. It's a very ancient crater. It's very degraded and eroded and the the rim of the crater is it's worn almost completely flat and and as soon as Opportunity got there, winter came and she couldn't drive anywhere. She was kind of stuck hanging out trying to shivering, staying warm over the winter. And then now this sp- spring is coming and she started driving again and so she's turned around the northern tip of this little ridge of crater rim and is now driving down the inside edge of the crater rim and has come across this amazing looking outcrop of rock that very likely is the most ancient rocks she has ever seen and it may well contain the kind of rocks that curiosity was sent to gale crater to investigate (laughs) so there is this competition going on between Mm. the two rover teams who by the way share a bunch of geologists and a bunch of rover drivers you know they're working on both teams but still i think the people who have worked on opportunity for so long are like where gonna get to the clays first damn it <laughs> <laughs> no you are you saying that, but,
2: they're determined. so um, rover drivers that's something interesting the, the driver isn't driving it like a remote control car because it takes 14 minutes i think is that right for the light to get well, the signal to go from earth to mars and back i think i think that's correct somewhere in that vicinity it takes light a long time anyway so they're robots they're autonomous vehicles aren't they they, they can work things out themselves
0: they can to some extent, although a lot of what's done, and you're right, it takes 14 minutes right now for one-way light time oh, between Earth way. and Mars. Goodness but me. But that varies a lot because Mars is quite close to Earth, which means that when, it's, when Earth and Mars are in nearly the same position in their orbits, it's down under 10 minutes. When Mars mm-hmm. on the opposite side of the sun, it's, it's over 20 minutes. Goodness um, me. So it depends on the relative positions in the orbits. But you're right, it means that you cannot joystick these things like you could say a rover on the moon, which is what the Russians did with their Lunokhod rovers. So this one, it needs to be commanded in the morning. You send up a list of commands in the rover's morning as the sun is rising. The rover executes those commands on Mars, and then at the end of the rover's day, as the two orbiters pass overhead, one at like 4 o'clock local time, one at about 5 o'clock, it relays all its information to those two two orbiters, and it sends that data back to Earth. And then scientists and engineers confer over the rover's night while the rover's sleeping about what to tell the rover to do the next day. now, that's, so ob- yeah. oh,
2: sorry. that's opportunity. It's opportunity is solar-powered, and Curiosity is nuclear-powered. Is that correct?
0: That's true, although Curiosity is still ruled just as much by the sun as Opportunity is for a couple of reasons. One is simply that when there is no sun, you cannot take pictures.
2: Ah, okay. No headlights on okay. it either. Yes, yeah, good point. We put big, big uh, HID lights on it, those high, high-intensity Be- discharges NASA ones. did
1: try to spring to those LEDs under the rim <laughs> yeah, so that right. it looks like it's hovering. <laughs>
0: so <laughs> There's actually one or two instruments that prefer to work at night because the temperature is lower. So the Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer, and I think it's KEMIN, the X-ray. Yeah, so they're both X-ray instruments. They prefer to work at cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. So the rover will drive around somewhere in the day, take pictures, figure out where it is, and then put its instruments on something and then run the X-ray instruments overnight while the rover's parked. But the other reason that Curiosity is ruled by the sunlight is because most of the rover's energy, it goes into heating its motors in order for it to drive. And because Mars Mm -hmm. is Temperature varies over 80 degrees Celsius over the course from day to night. If you want to drive at night, you spend all of your power just heating those those motors. You might as well wait to the morning. Wait until late morning, actually. The rover wakes up a little bit late. Uh, she's a she's an afternoon a br- person. She's, <laughs> <And> <laughs> she's br-
2: like brunch. She wakes up at brunch. Yeah. Uh, she
0: wakes up at brunch. Sensible. She does between noon and two ish, because that's when it's warmest, <laughs> and. Um, Take some pictures and then take some nice nap, really, for the rest oh, of the evening. So,
2: two. I'm going to ask my boss to only work curiosity hours. I think and it'll work quite well. Only ten till two. That's you'll what be I'm up doing. at night though, taking X-rays. That's,
0: <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of people talking about being on Mars time, which is kind of funny because you know Mars's days are really very similar to Earth's. They're 24 hours and 40 minutes long. 37 so people, minutes long. What's that?
1: right, that's the one piece of knowledge <laughs> I know. It's t- it's 24 hours and 37 minutes long. <laughs>
0: 37 minutes. Wow. So
1: you, oh, 180 Dan, seconds. Dan, Dan,
2: Dan, that, that sounds a bit petty, but, but Dan needs, it's the only, only thing, I thing I know about Mars.
1: <laughs> I said it last podcast too. I was very proud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway, if you're working on Mars time, you do get to sleep 40 minutes later in a day. But oh. the the weird thing is that you're working over the rover's night. So I'm actually looking at a clock right now that's telling me what time it is at the Curiosity landing site. It is now 3.03. PM local solar time on Sol 26, which means that it's right about time for Curiosity to be ending her day, and the orbiters are just about to pass by and take all of her data from Sol 26. Which means that now is the time when all of the scientists and engineers are showing up at JPL in order to get their workday started. Oh, is And uh, I'm talking to you guys in Australia. I think it's mid morning for you, or it's, noonish.
2: It's yeah. It's but right now it's it's about uh, half past one in the afternoon oh, okay.
0: here. So, so this seems like a civilized time for you, but I'm telling you right now that it's, it's pretty dark outside. The sun has set fairly recently and this is when all of the rover drivers and engineers are showing up at JPL in order to get their work day started.
2: Well, then, then maybe, so- maybe then we should, maybe now, smart enough to better should offer NASA. NASA should come. I've got a spare room. They could set up their equipment <laughs> yeah, in my spare room. It's not going to work for very long. And uh, and, they, uh... and they could stay there And then because it's daytime. Australia's a beautiful place. We're on the correct side of the world. Uh, the sun's much nicer are here. Uh, we have a big open desert kind of area. You, you, you're,
1: you're missing a very important part about the 24 <laughs> hours and 37 minutes, aren't you? What's that? What's that?
0: So there was actually a lot of discussion after Spirit and Opportunity landed about having hiring a cruise ship that, oh. would, that would travel westward by, <laughs> you know, 37 minutes worth of longitude each day. <laughs> and therefore the sun would be perfect for them. They would all be living on this cruise ship, having a lovely time oh, and commanding yes. the rover, and yes. they would just keep on traveling around the world. And it takes it takes about uh, 30 <laughs> days, not quite a month, actually, uh, 20-something days for it to come full circle, and then you'd always be on exactly the right time. Oh, you know, the government's
1: I mean, always trying to save money with NASA. They could just pay them on <laughs> Mars time.
0: Oh, yeah, here's two weeks' pay, oh, yes.
1: and every two weeks they're yes. getting an extra...
2: 12 hours out of Mozambique. was That's <laughs> for free. The, i mean, should be the administration wasn't really keen on, on hiring a cruise ship then.
0: No, I'm afraid the idea did not fly at NASA headquarters.
2: <laughs> so we could spend $2 billion on building a new rover, or we could spend half a billion dollars building a cruise ship. That'd be awesome. Just don't call it Titanic. That's whatever you do. That's, that's the only thing you can't do it. We have a, a guy in Australia, some sort of rich guy called Clive Palmer, who's actually building Titanic 2. So that might be a good ship to buy later on once it all goes horribly wrong. Uh.
0: That is probably one of the worst ideas <laughs> I have at yeah,
2: I, I don't know why I, I, I realise I always try and promote Australia in a positive way. As I was saying that, I was like, why am I telling you about this lunatic?
1: I think the first I think the first, <laughs> first voyage should be in fairly shallow water. Yes, yes. That was the big problem with recovery last time. No, but not too
3: shallow. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> we have, have lots
2: of reefs on the yeah. east coast of
1: Australia
0: that yeah. lots of
2: things can run into. Well, no, I've,
0: I've been to Australia. I actually spent a holiday in uh, in Queensland and, oh, and
2: yeah. really greatly enjoyed it. I would love to go back some Oh, then once again, we have a spare room. You can bring the entire family, no problem at all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I realize now, Dan, we should set up, we should, instead of being like Team Edward and Team the other guy, oh, goodness, Team uh, Jacob, Team from those Twilight novels. I know these. I, I, I'm a teacher with of children, so that's why I have to know these things. That's my excuse anyway. We should now become Team Opportunity and Team Curiosity, Dan. Who would you like to be? Uh, I want to be Spirit they know it's dead
0: oh
3: Aww. no 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 I
2: better pick that
1: something else they never stopped
0: then. those vampires did it <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, there you I, go we're going to think about this we're going to come back with, which one's be? I'm, I'm going to pick you? the undead uh, rovers uh, oh, there you go
1: Dan's team spirit so um, <laughs> I mean you're a bit of a, a boffin so far as all of these Mars rovers and stuff but you're also a bit of a boffin so far as Lego is that right
0: yeah, I was a huge Lego maniac growing up. Then I had small children and had to put all these tiny pieces away in closets so they would not choke and die. Yep.
1: Um, also, that- they, they work brilliantly as Caltrops human Caltrops. <laughs>
0: So so anyway, my youngest is now three, so I'm beginning to bring the small Legos out again. So I'm I'm very happy to be able to build again. Yes, I see.
1: Because uh, you've been working with these as part of the opportunity thing as well. So you were you worked with Lego to build this, the the models or something? Or
0: back on Spirit and Opportunity, we actually had an educational project that was funded by Lego. It had a bunch of different pieces, which I now I'm saying no pun intended. Um, but there was, one of the components was that there was this DVD that we sent on the lander, not the rover over itself but the lander that it landed in the thing that had the airbags attached to it (laughs) that um it had all of these so like four million people signed up to send their names to mars and they were on this dvd and the dvd was affixed to the lander with little aluminum blocks in the shape of lego bricks and a little lego spaceman Hmm. and we have these blog entries from these two lego spacemen because of course there were two there was one on Spirit, and there was one on Opportunity. And we pretended that the little Lego spacemen got up off of their DVDs and, and rolled across Mars with the with the rovers. Their names were, uh, let's see, Biff Starling and Sandy Moondust, <laughs> <laughs> the two astrobots who roved around with Mars. And that was really lovely to, to get to work with Lego. There was actually a guy who came from Denmark, We helped get into JPL and Caltech and see things under construction. They designed these great Lego kits for Mars exploration rovers, but there's no kit actually for Curiosity.
2: I've been looking for one um, for one of the, because I I go to different schools and promote science around Queensland schools and do tours uh, out back Queensland, part of my job at the CSIRO. And we have one of opportunity. We have a a lovely model of opportunity, which I I take out and show the kids and explain how much bigger it is. I cannot, as you said, I cannot find the Curiosity one. It's it's very frustrating.
0: so there isn't one, but there is a guy who has designed a Curiosity uh, Lego kit, and he has made the plans available for download. And so when you you can source the bricks, they're actually, since Spirit and Opportunity landed, the Internet has done more things than it did even before Spirit and Opportunity landed. And there are now these websites them is called BrickLink, where people seem to buy lots of kits, break them apart, and sell the component pieces just on a per-piece basis. So you can buy any piece you need for any kit. Ooh. And so if somebody posts these instructions, you just source all the parts you need, you buy them, you, you build the kit. And so the guys posted the instructions. And then there's this site called CUSU. It's an acronym, C-U-U-S-O-O. I don't know what it's an acronym for. But it's, it's something that's actually you know overseen by Lego. And, and these enthusiasts, they submit these designs and people can upvote them. And if they get 1,000 votes, then they go to a legal company that may decide to turn them into a kit. And there have been two kits made so far. One of them was a Japanese asteroid sample return spacecraft called Hayabusa, That has to be one of the most phenomenal missions I have ever had the honor to follow. And recently, this guy's Curiosity rover model got the 10,000 votes it needed to be sent on to the LEGO committee. So we have to wait and see if LEGO chooses to turn this into a kit. But it's happened before, and I actually have this LEGO model. The guy who designed it sourced and put together eight kits and sent them out to educational organizations, and I was fortunate enough to receive all of them. And it is freaking awesome. (laughs) I mean, it is not just a model of Curiosity. It is an awesome model of Curiosity. It has a working rocker bogey suspension system, which is, (laughs) if you have not heard of this, it's the, the wacky kind of levers. And lift our sort of connection of things that allows the six-wheeled rover to drive over obstacles that are taller than its wheels with hardly any disturbance whatsoever to the angle of the (laughs) the rover body. (laughs) And I've never seen a model of this. I could not even imagine how it worked, but now I have this Lego thing in my hands, and I can say – Oh, my God, that's how it works. It's amazing. And so I'm very hopeful that Lego will see the light and realize what an awesome kit this is. It's not very many pieces. It's about 300 pieces, which is a good, comfortable size for a Lego kit, and hopefully they'll decide to make it.
2: And I'm, so do I. All I'm going I'm to go to my boss on Monday and say, I have to build this and get them to buy all the pieces and <laughs> use work time to build it. I'm an education officer. It's what I do. It sounds like the best yeah. use of my time. I just hope Absolutely. that
1: they don't make a new, piece, like new pieces for it. I'm very much against that when i was a kid it was just blocks and maybe those <laughs> swivel pieces and some a couple of hinges now it's like here's one half of harry potter's castle and here's another and you click it together oh. with lego dots it's,
2: it's not that great that's,
0: that's true with you know the sort of basic model kits but actually the, this guy who came from denmark to do to, to uh, talk with jpeq about designing the rovers, he explained to me that the way that Leto looks at this is they have like four levels of serious marketing seriousness of their kits and the, the topmost level is the one that they make new parts for and that's your Harry Potter and your Star Wars stuff mm. but then there's actually this zeroth level that they don't make any new parts for and yet those tend to be the awesomest kits and mm. I think that mm. the the Mars Exploration Rover one was kind of like a level one so they made a couple of special things they had to make some flat panels to serve as the solar panels in this thing right. but apart from that all of the parts were existing ones that, that were already in Lego's repertoire and the same is true with with Steven's model now if you haven't played with Legos for a while you'll see a lot of new pieces but I have seen them in other sets and so they're not they're not anything unusual nothing new has been made to make this rover and it's pretty awesome oh, I'm
2: looking forward to it that's going to be very exciting now we, we also uh, with the Curiosity rover um, why is it actually up there? What's the point of it being there? And, and well, actually, two questions. I'll ask that question first. Why is it up there? What are we looking for? What's different this time about Curiosity and about Spirit and, Opp- to Spirit and Opportunity and Pioneer and all the ones that came before it?
0: Right. So um, Mars exploration by NASA is really distinct from... from- any other planetary destination where there have been you know, a dozen missions, and these dozen missions have all been part of a coherent program where one mission built on the previous one. So the first missions were Mariner 4, you fly by and you're like, oh my God, it looks like the moon, how boring. <laughs> and then Mariner 9, you get there and say, oh wait, Mariner 4 flew past the boring part. And now that we're in orbit, we see that there's channels there. Oh my God. And there's a fairground. <laughs> Yeah, Um, and so then you send Viking, which is two landers, and Viking's purpose was to do like a global reconnaissance. Um, Mm. And even though we've had all these missions since Viking, Viking orbiters' data on the color of Mars is still the best global data set on what on on the the reddish color map. So Viking's color map is still what we use to color in maps of Mars. We've had better black and white maps since then, but they're still all colored with Viking, which is what we've had since the late 70s. And so there was nothing for a while, and this kind of hiatus in the in the 80s and early 90s is what actually made the, caused the planetary society to be founded. And since then, NASA has been much more active. And we had this amazing renaissance in Mars exploration that started up around 1996, which is when Mars Global Surveyor was launched, and Pathfinder and the little teeny tiny Sojourner rover, which mm-hmm. I still think is so adorable. And Pathfinder was the first one to ground truth the things that we had learned from orbit, and ever since then, we've kind of been leapfrogging, where we have an orbiter that learns amazing things, and so we send a rover that goes to explore that, and then we have an orbiter that learns more things. And so curiosity has built upon this huge long uh, successful history of Mars exploration uh, curiosity has been sent to rocks more ancient than any other lander has been sent to and the reason that that's a good idea is because the orbital missions have shown us that Mars appears to have had this kind of directional geologic history where nowadays it's a horrible environment there's it's geologically fairly dead there's not much atmosphere and what there is oxidizes the heck out of anything that it mm. touches so that if you had any kind of organic chemical it would not last long at all because it would just get turned into and sulfur dioxide and methane and carbon dioxide and that's it there's no more organic chemicals on the surface of mars Mm. in the past it wasn't that bad and so you go you dig a little bit down into history and you get to this era when mars was had acid rain which doesn't sound very nice but at least it was rain Mm. that was during this era when there was a lot of volcanism that built these huge volcanoes like olympus mons and the tharsis montes but they're, With they're, the orbiters, they're the best
2: names in the world. I like just go, oh, yes. uh, Olympus Mon! That's, no, that's yes. the, you know that's the largest mountain in the solar system. It is a very
0: large mountain. <laughs> so we have these orbiters, and the, the higher resolution that they get on the surface, the, the deeper we seem to be able to get in history, because these oldest, oldest rocks are only exposed in tiny little areas, and they're the ones that contain clay minerals. And now you may think that clay is not terribly interesting, because after all, it is dirt. (laughs) But but clay is what you get when you make volcanic rocks wet for a long time, Uh. which is why people are very excited about it on Mars, because in order to make these clays, you have to take Mars' original rocks and let them be wet, not for just like one flash flood, Mm. but a long time mm-hmm. and so these clay minerals they're very old they tend to be more ancient than the sulfates and if you've been following spirit and opportunity very closely you'll know that spirit and opportunity have both been playing around a lot with sulfate rich mm-hmm. rocks that came from this acid rain era of mars's history but if you dig deeper than that you get to this clay era and that's what curiosity has been sent to investigate and so this was an era when there was nicer acidity it wasn't so acid it was kind of neutral ph and there was a lot of water around for a long time to attack these rocks and turn them into clays which is exactly what you want to go check out if you're interested in wondering whether mars ever had life like earth did Mm -hmm. and so that's what curiosity has been sent to go investigate is these ancient environments that were probably wet and much more pleasant for life than Certainly, the modern Mars is, and even then, the sulfate era of Mars was.
1: It's all very well and good that these uh, <laughs> that these cameras from space are getting such high res things, but I was very disappointed to see that there was no actual face in Mars. Oh well, that's, <laughs> like, that's
2: the that's the flip side. <laughs> that's well, also it's ruining what, the ma- lovely mythology. <laughs> it does. I, I know you're saying how curiosity being sent up there to, to look at the clays, as you just said earlier on. Opportunity might pivot at the post, so it might just get in there. It might just just get that's in right. slightly ahead and just go oh. Drab- opportunity. That'd, that'd be awesome too.
0: Well, it would be pretty awesome if Opportunity saw the clays first, but the, the sad truth is that Opportunity is n- no spring chicken. <laughs> um, she's been on Mars for a long time. There's mm. one of her instruments dependent upon a radioactive source of cobalt something or other. Its, it's radioactivity is a, something like 10,000 times weaker than it was when the rover landed, so wow. basically that instrument is non usable anymore. Mm. Another of her instruments was. Permanently damaged during the serious dust storm that almost killed both rovers. Yes, Opportunity really only has two science instruments left. One of them is a camera, which you really can't do very much with in terms of composition. Mm. You can sort of say, well, this stuff is kind of redder than this stuff, but it's not really definitive. And so she's got this one last science instrument called the Alpha Particle X-ray every single lander that has ever been sent to Mars has had one and it tells you what elements are there, but it doesn't tell you the mineralogy. so you can get you can take pictures, you can say, well, it looks like a clay and mm. it's got the right elements. You can't definitively identify it. So even if Opportunity is sitting right on top of it, even if she finds evidence that strongly suggests that she's looking at the clays, Mm. there's no certainty there. And so Curiosity is going to win in that sense. But still, it'll be a moral victory for Opportunity to identify (laughs) even this much Mm -hmm. because she's so old. I mean, she's been around for so long. She just passed the 35-kilometer mark on her odometer. (laughs) (laughs) And and you have to remember that mission success was identified as being like 300 meters.
2: Yes. Wow. So – She's doing pretty well. So
0: she's an amazing
2: thing. I as, as an old romantic like I am, is there any chance that when humans finally get to Mars, as pe- you know, people land on it, the first human steps out onto Mars, that they'll be met by Opportunity or Curiosity? Like they'll, they'll wander over and go, "Hi, thanks for picking us up. You finally <laughs> made it." I, I just I love the idea of of, of the robot just running for well you know, or trudging slowly towards where we're landing. Just it'd to go
1: like the, oh, here first. It'd be like the knight in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade <laughs> who waits at the end.
3: That's oh. right. um,
2: Yes. You come have finally chosen to me. wisely. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> One thing I would like to ask you. You're a Twitterer and a Googler and a blogger and a podcaster and all the rest why do you think that Curiosity has so much interest? I mean geeks like me it was interested in spirit and opportunity but my my partner, Girl Clumsy she was into this as well, she was very into the Curiosity lander, in fact I was listening to a, uh, a youth, a youth uh, aimed radio station called Triple J here in Australia and they actually stopped their music and, and said, oh my goodness we've just had word that Curiosity has just put one wheel down on Mars and then went back to their music and, and I was like, why is this got such, such penetration into into the common zeitgeist.
0: The Rovers, just by their nature, are very charismatic. You look at these things, they have two eyes, they have a head, they have legs, and so it's it's very easy to personify them, to think of them as actual, you know, thinking machines. At the same time, we have a generation of people who, like me, grew up in it. I was so into Transformers and Robotech and that kind of thing when I was oh, a kid. Oh,
2: Robotech! Oh my goodness! Sorry, that's, that's just, everyone says Transformers. I, I Robotech just, I, I need to sit down for a moment, excuse me, <laughs> for a second.
0: I love Robotech. We'll <laughs> try. Uh, and oh, not oh, just the giant v- Voltron, but also the vehicle, vehicle Voltron, right? Voltron oh my that goodness i the, 'm very and, excited emily <laughs> I'm sorry. That, i 'm sorry and that 's <laughs> why this is exciting because you know th- those of us who grew up thinking of these robots as sentient creatures with you know and, and we 're sort of predisposed to think of this thing exploring mars as not just a robot or a machine i mean we think of it as a character mm, and mm. and we are the ones who are kind of controlling the internet these days because you know we're, <laughs> we're, we're we're sort of that demographic should we have disposable income we're not just the kids who are like trying to get things for free i mean we're mm, mm. so right now it, it's our time right and so and we're predisposed <laughs> to think of this thing as a sentient creature or, you know, even though we don't think of it that way, we, we certainly understand it as an avatar for ourselves. And just in the last couple of years, we've become so uh, accustomed to thinking of ourselves as having an actual existence here on the internet. I mean, after all, I am talking to you guys. You're in Australia. I can, mm. like, look down through my feet and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, more or less 12,000 kilometers of solid rock, and there I'm talking to you right now. That's true. You know, the only people <laughs> who were able to do this before were, like, ham radio enthusiasts. Yes. And there was, like, you know, a thousand of them in the world. And now everybody, does this everybody has the sense of being able to be present in a virtual world so we can feel like we're present on mars through the avatar of this rover Mm -hmm. and so i think we were prepared to see curiosity to identify with curiosity and to um, therefore be so excited about this landing because we feel like it's us it's we who are landing on Mars, um, I and in the agree. past it was just you know some NASA wonks, but now it's it's really
1: us. <laughs> no, I, I disagree. I reckon it's just people love watching those Rube Goldberg machines.
2: <laughs> and it's, it's a, I was it, it's, it wasn't about Americans and it wasn't about Australians and it wasn't about any country in the world. It, I had a very big feeling that humans had done something really impressive, okay. and and it wasn't and admittedly it was all paid for by the Americans as far as I'm aware. But uh, oh,
0: but no, it wasn't. Oh, really? So oh, okay. so like well you know the lion's share of course was paid for by America, and, and the launch vehicles are expensive. It's an American thing. Mm. However, when you look at the science on these missions, the science is extremely international. You have missions like the Dawn spacecraft that is just departing the asteroid Vesta now and is on its way to Ceres, the largest asteroid. That's very exciting, That's an yes. American spacecraft launched on an American launch vehicle with three science instruments, none of which was built in the United States. There's a German instrument, oh, the, the camera's German, the, there's an Italian instrument, but anyway, the point is that the instruments that fly on these spacecraft are highly international, often they're built in different countries. You look at, at Curiosity, the, the weather package was is a Canadian instrument, mm. the APXS is a German instrument, and so, you know, the, the science on these missions has always been international, even during the Cold War. There were actually times when, just as America and Russia were competing to be the ones to get to Venus or be the ones to get to Mars, on a government level, the scientists, were like, hey, hey, I'll give you some of my Mars data if you'll give me some of your Venus data. And (laughs) and they were doing that. They were sharing it. And so uh, space exploration has always been this wonderful arena of International cooperation where it was really just about the science. As long as you were talking about robotic exploration, you weren't talking about sending humans to, to plant flags in soil. Mm, mm. It, it really was this human endeavor, and it remains that way, and I and I hope that it continues to remain that way.
2: And I have to say, from an Australian point of view, I mean, of course, on the first pictures from the moon, when man, when humankind walked on the moon, of course, came from Parks here in, in Australia, in New South That's... Wales. And, uh, and then recently, with Curiosity, also was Australian based telescopes. I don't know if that was Parks, though, I've forgotten actually.
0: No, it's Canberra, and, Canberra, and I have right. to yes, say that it always seems to be Canberra is the one on duty when these really important events happen. And really, I mean they are they are the most reliable. The Canberra is, is the DS the Deep Space Network station that NASA truly relies on for its most crucial moments in missions and the Deep Space Network does not get enough love. It's mm. it's one of those like freeway bridges. You don't think <laughs> about them until they collapse. Yes. But, but we have these three great stations. There's Canberra, there's Madrid, and there's Goldstone here in, in California. And it's through these three stations that all of these data from 20 spacecraft exploring the solar system, it all comes through the DSN. And without it, we'd have none of that information mm. from space. NASA so-
1: also gets all their fireworks and pornography from Canberra. <laughs>
2: that's a that's a very local joke. You probably don't get there, Emily. But that's <laughs> right. We, they they have all lax laws. <laughs> <laughs> Our Australian listeners are cacking themselves at the moment. Um, just, quick question is, uh, are there any other interesting missions going on? And everyone's sort of point, pointing at curiosity and, and maybe a little bit of opportunity. Is there anything else going on that we should well, know about?
0: Well, I've mentioned Don, but I've got a couple <laughs> of other favorites. Um, probably the big one right now is Cassini. Oh. Cassini has been in orbit at Saturn um, since just a couple of months after Spirit and Opportunity landed on Mars. And you know, just daily, the pictures of that mission returns...
2: Um, a- any time, I have to say, the Cassini the, with the Huygens probe and the Cassini uh, the craft, any time I'm feeling sad or down, if, when I remember Cassini's out there and I go look up, like there's a little robot hanging around, sat and taking these amazing photos, I can't help but smile every time. It's just amazing. And,
0: you know, one, one thing that's so wonderful about the Cassini mission is that it's an orbiter that can actually change whether it's going in the plane of the rings or going up and down over kind of nearly over Saturn's poles hmm. and so when you're when you're in a part of its mission where it's in the plane of the rings and it's seeing all the moons and the moons of Saturn I'll list them off for you. They're Minus, Enceladus, Tethys, Dione, Rhea, Titan, Hyperion, Iapetus, and Phoebe. You win the internet! <laughs> Each one of them is unique and interesting to visit, and Cassini gets amazing pictures, and then it sees one of them passing behind another, and it makes movies, and those are really cool. But then it'll go on to a different phase of its mission where it's not in the plane of the rings, so it doesn't get to see the moons. And yet, and we're in this phase right now, you look down on the rings, and you can see... A planet that looks a lot like Jupiter. I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine this how large the rings are. The rings mm. are uh, broader than than Jupiter by a factor of two. Wow! And yet they're made of like these tiny little particles, and yet they're this vast thing that reflects sunlight and is so beautiful. And so yeah, I agree with you. Every time I'm sad or I'm just like so stressed <laughs> out from work or whatever is going on, I go look at Cassini's images. So that's one of my favorites. Juno has just performed its first big deep space maneuver, firing at rocket to bring it back to earth in august next year before it heads on to jupiter for an encounter in 2016 it'll go into orbit get some amazing photos of its poles it's gonna be so exciting New Horizons is on its way to Pluto. That's
2: right. That's the one that—that's uh, the one I always think funny. It's got on its way to Pluto, which is a good place to go. But kids, especially younger kids, who uh, who sort of think no, now know that Pluto is no longer a planet or con- not considered a planet, it's a dwarf planet. You, you kind of go. So why are we sending it to Pluto then? You go. That's a very good question. <laughs> I never know how to answer it except everywhere is cool to go.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think I think that this is a major education problem that, that those of us who are interested in planetary exploration are facing right now because, after all, we really have completed the initial reconnaissance of all of the large things in the solar system. And we're we're kind of predisposed to think that big things are important, and they are. But really, the exciting science that's going to happen from now on is not necessarily at the planets. It's at the smaller things. So, like, Mm. Ceres is going to be extremely exciting when Dawn gets there in a couple of years. Pluto is just one of the biggest of an enormous class of planets. Here's something that I didn't know until recently. Do you know that there are more things that are round? So they're big enough to have self-gravity that makes them round. Mm-hmm. There are more things that are round beyond Neptune than there are interior to Neptune.
2: Uh, I didn't know that. That's interesting, isn't it? Where's the bulk of the cubes? <laughs> that's Borg space. That's I right. Yeah we, yeah, we didn't talk about Borg space. That's, uh, okay. that's in the Delta Quadrant.
0: That's an Delta oh, quadrant, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yay, yeah, geek with this. So, like things, things that are bigger than than about 400 kilometers across, which is about the size of Saturn's moon Mimas, they mm. are round because mm. their gravity makes them spherical. Mm. And there's more than 200 of those things in the Kuiper Belt, along with Pluto. Mm. And there's yes. only about 40 or 50 of them interior to Neptune. There's a lot fewer. Now they're big.
2: I blame I blame Jupiter for that, though. That's my guess. Jupiter just sucked everything Morgan. in.
0: Yeah, it's Jupiter's fault.
2: Yeah, Jupiter's fault. Um, Uh, Jupiter always—it's—it's the bully of the of the. Well, it's either it's either the bully of the solar system or it's the protector of the solar system. I'm never terribly sure which one it is, but anyway.
0: (sighs) Well, so so Pluto's been tossed out, but it's kind of sad because you know I feel like we learned more about the solar system, so now we're teaching our kids less because rather (laughs) than include. Eris and Haumea and Varuna and Quawar and Makimaki and all of these other wonderfully named things out there. We just kicked out Pluto because it was just too complicated. Mm. And my opinion is if a child can know the difference between a Pachycephalosaurus and a Pteranodon, then surely they can understand the difference between Makimaki and Haumea.
2: I agree. I think that so. we should be telling more to about space and getting everyone excited about space. But now we, we need to, unfortunately, we need to end it uh, there. Emily, we've run out of time. The satellite is going overhead. That's not totally, it's a total lie there. We're losing contact with Earth here on Mars. And <laughs> actually, we just have to go and buy some fireworks and pornography. <laughs> That's very true. So thank you very much, Emily, for, for talking today. It's fantastic. I always love talking to people who are really excited about space as much as I am, if not more. So thank you very much. Where should people go if they want to read more of your writing? Things.
0: People should come to planetary.org. They'll find me at planetary.org slash blog. And I also am on Planetary Radio, our weekly podcast about all things space.
2: Fantastic. And you'll be able to click on that in our show notes. Marvellous. Emily, like it well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have
1: been completely turned around about how great space is. <laughs>
2: You've, uh, that was a great interview. What are you talking about? I like
1: the bit where she talked about dinosaurs. <laughs> Didn't go for
2: long enough, though. Well, you, you, well done on the Lego question. Oh, very nice. Ah, uh, yeah. He's a man who knows his Lego. Oh, uh-huh, yes. Right. And I, and as soon as I get access to Lego, I am making Curiosity the rover out of Lego. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to give it to kids. Uh. <laughs> it's mine. All right. Want to play a game? Indeed. big Bigfoot, who
4: is who? It's all going down at the CryptoZoo.
1: So, they made some mice... That is to say, some scientists got some mice <laughs> and they made some more mice by putting the mice together mm-hmm. in sexy, sexy ways. Ooh. But what they did is they also got some jellyfish DNA. Oh, yes, yes. And they stuck that into the mice mm-hmm. so the mice glow in the dark.
2: It, when you put certain light on them, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's brilliant. That's, I think it's awesome. We always know where the mice are. Yeah, where are the mice? There they are. You're taking one animal mm-hmm. and another animal and
1: you're mixing them together to mm-hmm. get a super animal
2: <laughs> with, with abilities not beyond that of mortal animals. Yeah. Mm, some sort of, right, super animal. So
1: in today's crypto zoo, I want us to try to figure out the best pairing of animals to blend together into one super animal to take over and replace humankind.
2: Oh, I was about to say humans have done a pretty good job, but okay, so to take over and replace
1: humankind. Yeah, and you're not allowed to use humans. Right. No because as of... the Bible says, we're
2: not animals. We're, we're... above them. Because <laughs> yeah, We base everything here on this podcast on what the Bible says. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. And in what way take over from humans? Define that. Do you mean intellectually? Do you mean breeding? Do you mean... Hunting us down. Oh, right. And wiping
1: us out. Hunting us down and wiping us out. In the coolest way possible. Yeah,
2: he's about to say. Otherwise, so, it's just super bacteria. It's just viruses and And, and, we, stuff, and, we, and we die. That's, yeah, yeah, that's very dull. Oh, well, it gets into our mucous membrane no, the, and kills us. The
1: most awesome horror film Apocalypse, like a big,
2: a big sort of animal, monstery yeah. thing. Yeah. Like there's, there's, there's octo shark or something. Oh, no, I said, don't, don't ruin it. Cause that's what I was gonna say. That's what I was gonna say. I think we should get some. How many animals can we splice together? Two. Two. Damn it! You're yeah. ruining. Because they already have octo shark yeah. and they have um baracnate as well. Arachnid, bear arachnid. It's like a an arachnid. It's a it's a tarantula the size of a bear with a bear on top. Oh, that's good. Bear arachnid. But I didn't come up with that. That's an interesting thing. Bear arachnid and and octoshark. I was thinking some sort of squid, but some sort of squid that can come on land. And and I'm going to say a squid mixed with an elephant would be very very dangerous. Very very dangerous. And and I, I but I have to admit I didn't kind of come up with this either because there is um uh, there's a there's a documentary called the future is wild, and the future is wild. They jump for they say what happens if humans died right now, and then they show you five million times, ten million years time, five hundred million years time, animals that may evolve. They're just making crap up. Yeah, but I the- remember reading a book like that in
5: primary
1: I- school and just going, I want moths that are. Six foot tall and look like <laughs> mountain gorillas too.
2: <laughs> we all do. But in that they had uh, squibbins, and they were squids that had evolved to live on land. They were called squibbins, and they squibbed through the air like the trees. <laughs> it was very weird. And they had these elephant squids, that are these uh, mega, mega squid things. So ah. that's, that's where I'm getting the idea from. Some, some sort of squid that can wander around on land. That's my take on it. That would be very scary and take out humans. Ooh.
1: What about no, you? That, that's good. I like the swordfish. Yes. The, the one with the. Oh, sorry, the sawfish. Oh, yes, it's yes. The shark with the. It looks like it's got a, a saw on it on the front of it. Mm-hmm. I reckon mix that up with a parrot. Because <laughs> parrots are
2: smart. Oh, we got the brain. Although, I don't know whether you could use that thing as a particularly effective tool. To do it, we only to do it once. Like, just find the. Take me to your leader. Uh, and they can say it, dude. It. Ah, take me
3: to your leader. Oh, that's take true. You to your ah.
2: they go, oh, no, he'll cut his throat. We don't negotiate with terror parrots. Oh, oh, I know. There's a, there's a, no, but
1: even better, because the parrot's a good one to start with. Yes. Because they're smart and they live for ages. Mm-hmm. So you get one of those opossum things with the long fingers <gasps> that probe into stuff. The Madagascar, the lemurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yes, lemurs yes. with the long yes. fingers. Yes, it's yes. And, yes. And, you, and you stick that on a parrot, and the parrot can just unlock doors. <laughs> come into your house. Come into your house. Oh, that's not good. And just perch. You and, and wake up and there it is perched and looking at you with its long <laughs> ET-like fingers.
2: Another one that Girl Clumsy would really hate, if you took just a gecko, so the geckos can kind of regenerate anyway, so they can regenerate, oh, I don't know if geckos can, but there are lizards that can regenerate limbs, all sort of translucent skin. Oh, yeah. And then you just mix them with something like a hippo, and they're really big, and they hang on your ceiling. So you, the Waals forces, this probably doesn't work at all. Actually, I, I already hear Steve Noling <laughs> writing me an email. <laughs> Steve Nurlick from cheapasper.com writing me an email going, actually, Greg, you'll find that VanderWaal's forces won't work on an animal that size. I know, Steve! <laughs> Preempting that letter, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that's still, if it did work, if we lived in a universe where. We could, have a gecko that could come up, upside, like a massive gecko, that you'd just be lying in bed, and you'd just be, and you wake up going, oh, hey, it's really warm. I thought, I didn't realize I put the doona on last night, and the, uh, or the duvet, if you're an American, seeing probably some Americans are listening today, and you realize it's the giant gecko eating you from the legs up, just going, oh, no, no.
1: <laughs> 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 There's one that I
2: don't think it I could get for a thousand years in the stomach of the Sarlacc.
1: If If you got a vampire bat, quite threatening and frightening, Yes. And a giraffe. So it just leans in the top windows and just... But you still, I couldn't take that seriously. Like, even while it was sucking my blood, I'd be yes. like,
2: what a dopey looking animal. Why not follow the John Wyndham school and go a sunflower mixed with a scorpion and have a trifid. Oh, that's not too bad. Yes. Didn't think get plants. Yes, see, plants. Plants oh, are very scary. Good. Some sort of lichen based thing. So, but lichen is already a fungus and a, it's basically it's a plant and animal working together. A mold, some sort of, oh, I find what it is. Oh no, walk mm. shape. Or, or like just a mushroom and a cockroach.
1: And so you're looking in the room and there's a, like just mushrooms sitting in the corner yeah, of the room. And fine. you look away and you look back and they're closer.
2: And, <laughs> and the only person who could save us would be an Italian
1: plumber.
4: <laughs> it's a me to save the world. What's, with
1: the, what's that fish that gets all slimy and gooey? That's just a fish. No.
2: Oh, no, 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 uh, a hagfish. That's the one, a hagfish. hagfish. Yes,
1: yes. You get a hagfish which can exude slimy mucus from mm. all over its body and tie itself in a knot to escape, yes. and you splice that in with a Bengal tiger.
2: <laughs> so it kills you and eats you. When people come and get it, yeah. yeah. Or, or some sort of, or maybe a hagfish mixed with a condor, because they can fly in and, like, grab you. Yeah. <laughs> And it also, like, if you just land on the highway, it's just weird. And of course, you'd be out of control, you'd slip all over the road. There are so many things science should not do with genetics, we just realised. and uh, But we've given them ideas. So, thank you. If you, so if you wake up tomorrow being eaten by a giant gecko or maybe plucked by a hag condor or um, what, what, else? what else? Well, uh, what can the audience come up with?
1: I bet they can jump into our forums right now and put together two animals that we never would have thought of into a combination, a startling and horrifying combination. I agree.
2: Maybe something that can take out computers. Like a bug. A mouse... That looks like a mouse, but really is, is quite venomous to touch. That was crap. See, I'm awful at this game. Well, I, I suppose like a... Because like a, like, <laughs> the only thing that gets into computers is like
1: little ants and bugs and yeah. moths and stuff, but you splice that in with an electric eel, <laughs> you're up
2: shit creek. There you go. Done. Get into the audience. Get in there and tell us if two animals will be spliced together to make the most devastating thing that kills humans. Remember, bacteria may not all... Amoebas may not apply.
1: Now, you were talking about Steve Nerlick making fun of you. Yes. Weren't you? Because he's got something to say. He sent in a thing for us. Oh,
2: he did. That's what we thought about it.
1: No, he didn't. Yeah. I got it. It's all about yeah. gravitational potential energy. And because I, I really didn't know what I was talking about. And he has come to set us both straight.
5: Gravitational potential energy is more of a theoretical concept than something real. The idea is simple enough, though. If you fire a bullet straight up, And let's assume you do this in a vacuum. The bullet will follow a parabolic trajectory, slowing as it reaches its maximum altitude, after which it will descend back downwards, accelerating as it falls. So, by the time that it is back near the ground, you will find that it is moving with exactly the same velocity that it had when it left the gun muzzle. At the bullet's point of maximum altitude, we say that it has gravitational potential energy equivalent to all the actual energy that was used to propel it to this altitude. So all the energy involved in the rapid burning of gunpowder to produce the compressed gas that then pushes the bullet out of the muzzle of the gun is converted into the potential gravitational energy that is available when the bullet is at its maximum altitude. Then, as it begins to fall back to Earth, that potential gravitational energy is converted back into actual momentum energy being the mass of the bullet times the velocity it gets accelerated to. So energy is conserved, and the first law of thermodynamics is upheld. Hooray for physics! But, as we said earlier, it's not really energy in the conventional sense. Imagine that you are now standing on top of the Burj Khalifa, and you fire your gun upwards. The bullet goes up, achieves a point of maximum altitude, and then it begins to fall. As it passes you, At 800 meters above the ground, it has the same momentum energy it had when it left the muzzle of your gun. But from there, it keeps on falling an extra 800 meters towards the ground, and it keeps on accelerating as it goes. So when it hits the ground, it actually has more momentum energy than it did when it left the muzzle of your gun. If that's not puzzling enough, try another experiment without the gun. If you just hold a bullet between your fingers and lift it up and then let it drop to the floor again. Sure, it gains momentum energy in the fall, but it's not an energy that was ever contained within the bullet itself. So, gravitational potential energy arises from the position of the bullet in space and time, not from the bullet itself. In reality, or at least in Albert Einstein's reality, the bullet that you fire from a gun in a vacuum really does retain all the kinetic energy that was imparted to it when it was propelled from the gun muzzle. But when you watch it go up, and see it nearly slow to a standstill at a high altitude, you are comparing your frame of reference to a totally different gravitational frame of reference, where time is less dilated, and distances are less scrunched up. So the bullet appears to slow to a standstill. It's only as the bullet follows its curved parabolic path and returns to your altitude that you are able to properly measure how it really does retain the same energy it had from the moment it left your gun. From the bullet's point of view, it got shot out of a gun and then proceeded at a constant velocity until it hit the ground, all the way along carrying with it the same momentum energy that it had when it left the gun muzzle. Gravity isn't really about energy. It's about curved space-time. So gravitational potential energy is just a kind of mathematical modelling. It's not real.
2: Wait a minute, that wasn't Steve Nerlich? Yeah, it was. He was definitely a man. No, 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 that we was We talked Steve. to him before. We interviewed him on the podcast. No, that's his voice. That's not his voice at all. Yeah, yeah, That was Jane. That was, that was Jane who sometimes voices things for him, writes them for, for his podcast as well. No, she has a much deeper voice. <laughs> We're being tricked anyway. Thank you much to the Cheap Astro podcast for that one, for the information, putting us right about gravitational potential energy. All I can say is curiosity would have had to deal with all that as it went plunging through for the seven seconds of of the hell. There you go. Hmm. Or terror. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds like it's the beginning of Walk of Shame. Of shame. <sighs> it was pointed out that I said seven seconds, I uh, say so seven minutes of hell. We're talking about curiosity's plunge yeah. into the atmosphere. It wasn't. It was, it just was seven, seven minutes of heaven. Uh, <laughs> just making out with a robot in a, in a, in cupboard, a cupboard. Falling towards Mars. <laughs> But it's seven minutes of terror. I'm sorry, that' that's seven minutes of terror as it was put right, yes, by people. Thank you very much, people, for putting me right. And that's the end of
1: Walk of Shame. shame. That was an easy
2: one this that's week. Good. You point out that I said something on the podcast I didn't actually say. What You made a comment in the last podcast that yeah, yeah. that I came out and said this weird thing about gas and heating up. Yeah, <laughs> I never said any of that, actually. I'm pretty sure you, you did. You called me out on it and I went and checked. I didn't actually say any of that. I understand what you're saying, but I never actually said what you said I said. No, I'm pretty sure. If the did. audience is confused... Then hey, no, no, no,
1: you, to you said it. I just edited it out at the time <laughs> to stop you looking like an idiot.
2: Oh, thanks, Dan. That's appreciated.
1: I'll uh, go back and find it. It might sound a bit choppy. <laughs> like... Uh, Chunks of conversation have been snipped in from other places. But it's there. You find it. Well, if everyone here likes Transformers... And
2: don't we all? Then So maybe. say we all. Wait, that's wrong. That was the wrong thing. So say all of us? So so say we all. That was um, Battlestar Galactica. What am I thinking? I don't know. <sighs> Robotech? Yeah, I'm probably a bit confused then. Cyclones are cool. Anyway, I'm sorry. Cyclonus? Cyclones are cool. Cyclones oh. are the the bikes that turn into body armour. I so one of those as a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: All right, well, I wrote a song. I had to write a song, a dance song. Goodness me. All about a great battle. Mm -hmm. What greater battle is there than, at the beginning of Transformers, the movie, the Battle of Autobot City?
2: Uh, I really like that. Ahoy. <laughs> That's right. You used the word prime with two different r- names or than the man's name or the robot's name. That's very good. I like that. Excellent. <laughs> no, it's, it's fun. You I'm... have been listening to Smart Enough to Know Better. I'm Greg at smartenough.org. And I'm Dan at smartenough.org. We'll be back in just two weeks.
1: Two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. For
2: more science, comedy, and
1: ignorance. Make sure that you jump into the forums and try to mash two animals together. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at SE2KB or at Facebook at backslash enough. Don't forget that we've got the Smart Enough Expo coming (gasps) up on the 7th of October. I actually did forget. It's a Sunday. We're going to be running around in a park. With sunburn cream on, shooting each other with Nerf darts. Then we're going to go barefoot bowling. That's going to be awesome. Well, there's a few drinks,
2: if you're allowed to drink, of course. Yep. And you come and see us. Say hi. And only one if you're not. That's right.
1: You talk to old Uncle Dan. <laughs> and uh, we'll make sure that no one else is looking, and we'll slip you one of those nice little rum and cokes, Jeez. and you'll be throwing up in a dumpster by the end of the evening. Uh, Uncle
2: Dan uh, is making jokes there, of course. Jokes that no one could possibly sue us for.
1: Yeah, certainly nothing illegal. No, that's good. I'm you just uh, coming to Uncle Dan.
2: I love space and everything is Stan. So, in fact, I'm, I'm studying astrophysics now on a master's level. And uh, and Dan is the more earthbound curmudgeon of the group. So he
0: Excellent. <laughs> I love earthbound curmudgeons. So, you know, I'm sure we'll get along. <laughs>
1: Can you hear me now?
0: I can hear you very well. I'm laughing because it sounded like you were you were beating a kangaroo or something.
1: Yeah, they fight (laughs) back. I wouldn't try that. Okay, I think I found. I've got a slightly better signal now. Now I have to do is do that,
3: smack that
2: kangaroo, and oh goodness. Justin, if you want to say anything... anything um, libelous. Libelous, now's the time.
0: <laughs> we, we, we... I'll save that for the broadcast. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>